Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Wow, such interesting times, challenging times, sad times, fearful times that we're in. But, um, you know, the, the best that I can say is we're in this together. I'm here with my co-host, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. And while traditionally we're here with a uh, an audience, uh, we too have had to move to different a different format, different method in which our audience, you're sitting over there, but uh, we're still here. Uh, we'll try out this whole virtual thing and yeah. hopefully... You know, this is this is what we're going to do for the time being. Our special guest today, um, how timely uh, that the, our very first production of this virtual format um, is talking about this subject. Uh, our, our guests are filmmakers and activists, filmmaker Abby Ginsberg and Saru Jayaraman, who are here to talk about their film Waging Change. Abby, Saru, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Uh, yeah, so I mentioned, wow, what uh, interesting times, challenging times, a perfect time actually to be speaking with you both about the work that you're doing, the subject of the film, Waging Change. Um, let's start off by actually making sure that people know and understand. I mean, at first, it was exciting that we were going to have you. It was timely because the premiere of Waging Change was going to happen here in San Francisco, but uh, just got news that that is changing, of course. So let me just say, we had to postpone it based on sort of new rules that the city of San Francisco was trying to follow. Um, the screening was going to be on March 22nd. It is now postponed until May 17th, hoping that that window gives us all time to not get the coronavirus and show up for the screening. Um, but there are now rules in San Francisco about any gathering over 250 people needing to be essentially disbanded. And since our screening was going to be a week from now, you know, we exercised the caution necessary and decided to postpone it. And we thank the Castro Theater for agreeing to that. So all systems go for May 17th, but don't go to the theater on March 22nd because Waging Change will not be playing then. There's a lot that's on our mind. I mean, I'll just say this on the way here uh, to the Commonwealth Club, looking in at the restaurants and and what I would normally experience is, you know, bustling crowd of people getting lunch since our program is at lunch. Uh, the restaurants are bare and we're, you know, seeing waitresses, hostess um, kind of not you know my first thought is uh oh, this is horrible this is bad and i don't know what's going to happen but i know that a lot of our service workers will be deeply impacted and, and impacted first so waging change um when you started this this documentary i mean the film why don't we open up with you know kind of your what drove you what inspired you to want to document this this work yes so what happened for me was that I heard Saru speak at a luncheon hosted by a group in town, a nonprofit group called Equal Rights Advocates. And I was stunned to learn, this was back in probably 2015, that there were a number of states that only paid restaurant workers $2.13 an hour as their base wage. I, we come from a state where they, in fact, pay full minimum wage plus tips. But in many states in this country, it was a two thirteen dollar an hour tip minimum wage, and I just about fell off my seat. And as a result of that, I began to think about how if I didn't know this, and I'm reasonably well educated and care about labor issues and so on, 
there must be millions of people across the country that have no idea that we are still living both with this legacy of slavery and that even though the minimum wage has gone up a bit over the last few years, that the tip minimum wage has not moved since 1991. So I just got on a tear to try to tell the story and to really educate people as to what the situation was with tipped restaurant workers across this country. Um, And that was really what motivated me. Um, Once I got into the story, this is a story that has been filmed over a number of years, um, some other issues emerged. And I think that they're important as well, because I initially thought that it was likely that I would end the film with a positive outcome of a ballot that took place in D.C., where the voters of D.C. voted to end the tip minimum wage by 2026. So it was a slow evolution of, you know, going from at the time they were at 277, they would go up $1.50 a year. And by 2026, it would be the end of the tip minimum wage and restaurant workers like everybody else would get a minimum wage plus tips. Uh, And what happened was that ballot initiative did pass in D.C. However, In June of 2018, right after it passed, the D.C. City Council voted, you you know, by eight to five to repeal it. So then we are in a different discussion about what does democracy mean at this point in time in our history. So we have two issues that I think people need to know about. One is what's going on with the tip minimum wage. And the other is how scary it is to live at a time when you know, legislative bodies like the D.C. City Council or the Michigan legislature or others can essentially nullify the will of the voters who have already expressed where they're at and have voted in a majority vote to change something. And then the D.C. City Council says, no, we're not doing it. So the film now essentially addresses both those issues. It tries to explain how we got into the mess that we're in and how we ended up with the $2.13 minimum wage, tip minimum wage, and what is going on in the country in terms of the influence of the National Restaurant Association and other corporations in terms of uh, preventing initiatives from succeeding. I mean, because as I say, even when they succeed, they don't succeed. And that to me is really scary. And so I felt like, you know, our democracy is at stake on top of our economy. So that's a long-winded answer as to why I decided to make the film. Mm-hmm. There, I, I was like, I think most people who will watch this, I was stunned, of course, to learn about the $2.13 minimum wage. And even more so then when you, uh, you're talking to some folks who earn that and they never see any of it. They still get a check that can be $0 after working their week or two weeks or however however often they get paid. Um, explain a bit about that because that, that, that's just mind-blowing to me. Well, I mean, think about it. So it, 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 that the reason they see a check that says this is not a check is because all the money that they would receive as a wage basically goes to their taxes. Yeah. So that when we show a check that says, you know, zero, zero, the money that they made from the employer, which is minuscule, goes to offset the federal tax bill, their federal tax bill. And so they're left with nothing back to the point that these people are living solely off their tips. So that's how you kind of get there. And if you think about, I mean, just so we really understand what we're talking about, in a state where the tip minimum wage is $2.13, 
almost every one of those states has a federal minimum wage of over of only $7.25. So you are looking at a situation where even in the best of all worlds, people are only making $7.25, you know, and part of their tips are going to underwrite that. In California, let's just take sort of San Francisco where the tip minimum wage is slightly, the minimum wage is slightly over $15. If you're a worker in a California restaurant, not this week, but in general, and you're making $15, your tips are all on top of that. If, But if you're one of those 213 states, all your tips are not on top of that because $5.12 of every tip that you're earning is going just to bring you to minimum wage. So it, there is a great disparity in terms of how income is earned in a state that only has a 213 tip minimum wage and a state like California, of which there are seven, where, you know, workers are paid the full minimum wage plus tips. I hope that's clearer. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, let's introduce Saru to the conversation. Saru is actually a subject of the film and the activist and co-founder of Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, which is also you know the the bulk of the work that is documented in the film. Saru, I think also you know the 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 perspective that most people aren't looking at at it from. For example, yeah, it is shocking for everyday people to to realize that it's two dollars and thirteen cents. Uh, the federal minimum wage that restaurant workers would get, but not looking at it from the perspective or the lens that what you tip isn't necessarily gratuity, but it's a subsidy for, you know, restaurants um, in, in how they pay workers, which, so then what are the restaurants actually paying for if they're not paying for their workers? Yeah. So I think it's important for people to realize, uh, I think most people don't know about the $2 wage that exists, but I, I think most people also don't realize that we're not talking about a sliver of the population that gets $2.13 we get. We're talking about the largest and fastest growing industry in America. So we're, we're about to hit the 14 million worker mark in the United States for restaurant workers. We, we have the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry of any country in the world. We, we eat out more than anybody else on earth. Uh, and even during economic recessions and depressions, we, we continued to see the restaurant industry grow. We continue to eat out. Um, unfortunately, when you've got the largest and fastest growing industry, but it has the absolute, literally absolute lowest paying jobs of any industry in the United States, that, you know, has terrible impacts, not just on the restaurant industry, not just on restaurant workers, but on the whole economy, on our GDP, on our future as a country. I mean, what happens when the largest and fastest growing industry has the lowest paying wages and a $2.13 wage? It means we're growing from about one in three working Americans working full time and living in poverty, inching closer and closer to one in two working Americans working full time and living in poverty. So when we get to that point, I want to ask you, who's going to consume? Mm-hmm. Who's going to eat out? Who's going to who's going to support the restaurant industry, let alone every other industry? We need a base of consumers to keep the economy going. And that's not going to happen, not to mention that we know from world history that it's the moments when you've got the greatest levels of income inequality, as we do right now, with the highest levels of income inequality in our histories, in our nation's history. That those are the moments when dictators and demagogues arise throughout throughout world history, and so we're we're looking at a very dangerous situation um, and a legacy of slavery, as Abby mentioned. So, how did we get here? We got here because you know you have to ask yourself how 
that the largest and fastest growing industry has the lowest paying jobs, it's because of the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, which we call the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, and it turns out it's been around 150 years since emancipation of slavery when it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything, and have them live entirely on tips. And, and that was not the original concept of tipping. Tipping was always meant to be an extra or a bonus on top of a wage, not the wage itself. But it was slavery in the United States that led two industries, the restaurant industry and the Pullman train company, to hire service workers and say, black workers, and say, well, they haven't been paid for generations. Why should we pay them now? Let them live off of tips, sort of like let them eat cake, right? Um, let them live off of tips, which was a mutation of the original notion of tipping because of our ugly racial history in the United States. And that became law in 1938, that everybody gets a minimum wage for the first time in 1938, except for tipped workers who were mostly black women at the time. And we went from a $0 wage for tipped workers in 1938 to $2.13 an hour today. That's a $2 increase over 81 years, or you might say $2 increase over 150 years since emancipation. Uh, and over that time period, you've seen the restaurant lobby uh, successfully you know, push Democrats and Republicans to leave these workers out, I believe, in large part because they are women. 70% of these workers are women. And we already know we have a severe problem of gender pay inequity in this country Certainly, if this was an overwhelmingly male workforce, we might not have a $2 wage, but you're talking about the lowest paid women in America and the largest workforce of women. Six million tipped workers out of the 13, 14 million restaurant workers, mostly waitresses at restaurants like IHOP and Denny's, struggling to live off a $2 wage plus tips, having the highest rates of poverty of any industry and the highest rates of sexual harassment of any, any industry. Because when you live off a sub-minimum wage, you you have to de depend on those tips, you are going to put up with whatever whatever's going to come your way. However, customers are going to treat you or talk to you or touch you because those are the customers paying your bills, feeding your kids, not your employer. And we, by the way, know this to be true. We know that it's the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers that leads to sexual harassment because California is one of seven states that doesn't have this system that requires a full minimum wage with tips on top. And we see one half the rate of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry in California as we do in the rest of the country. And that is because women in California get a full wage from their boss. They don't have to put up with anything and everything from customers. They can swat away that guy who tries to grab their butt because they don't entirely depend on that tip. They appreciate the tip. Tips are important uh, on top of a, a wage of 15 to survive in California, but they're not the the only way to get income, and so women are able to reject the harassment. Saru, could you also talk about the 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 incidents, which is huge, of wage theft that particularly affects people who are earning sub minimum wage? This I thought was brought out very well in the movie. Yeah, I mean the, the insanity is that the restaurant association loves to say, "Well, nobody actually earns two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. The law requires us to ensure that." We make up the difference. If, if they don't get tips that bring them to the full minimum wage, the law requires us as employers to make sure that tips bring you to the full minimum wage. Now, under the Obama administration, we have the highest levels of enforcement of this issue. They really tried to enforce this law, and they ended up uh, doing a special kind of investigation of about two, three, four thousand 4,000 restaurants 
they found an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually making up the difference. Now, that is during the highest levels of enforcement that we've ever seen. And at, at the end of that, the Solicitor General for the U.S. Department of Labor under Obama, <laughs> Smith, said this issue is unenforced. There's no way to enforce this issue. We should just have one fair wage. And she's come out very publicly in support of just one wage for everybody with tips on top. But even putting that aside, I mean, the fact that the Restaurant Association has said we shouldn't have to raise the minimum wage, the law requires us to make up the difference. But then under Trump administration, by the way, Trump is a card carrying member of the National Restaurant Association as a hotel and restaurant owner. So under the Trump administration, they have removed all federal enforcement of this issue. They have completely removed any incentive for employers to actually comply with this issue. So on the one hand, they're saying we don't have to raise them in a wage because we're supposed to make up the difference. And on the other hand, they've been working with the Trump administration to say don't enforce it. Don't make us make up the difference, even though there's an 84 percent violation rate. Abby, I know that we uh, have to let you go in a, about 10 minutes. And so I just want to make sure we also get your concluding thoughts. I mean, we opened up the program talking about the challenging time that we're in. And, and basically, you know, uh, there's a lot to the it's a timely conversation. You, this film about three, it took what three three years or so you followed you know some of these yes, folks in their story years it was a long process yeah but before we let you go i mean i'd love to hear your thoughts as this discussion is coming to national attention now and how we protect uh wage workers and in a fair way and now that we're faced with this pandemic um they're going to be impacted deeply well, and gravely what, yes So just let me say that one of the things, and Saru can even speak more about this, but one of the things that we're seeing is how the absence of sick pay across the, you know, across the entire restaurant industry is now kind of a national catastrophe. So it has gone from being, you know, something that workers who work in this industry have been dealing with forever and they come to work sick because they can't afford not to. It's like if you are not going to be paid and you barely are making ends meet or you're even not making ends meet, but you need the job, you come to work sick or well if there is not a sick pay policy. And what we're now kind of up against is the fact that workers who may like many people feel like, well, I don't feel great, but I don't know what my symptoms are. I haven't necessarily tested positive for anything. We are encouraging everybody to stay home right now. Workers in restaurants need to be among those who really kind of take stock of how healthy they are. Are they feeling sick? What are we going to do if they, you know, if they do feel sick? And what we're now looking at, I sort of said before, is like community contagion. So not only should they not be coming in for themselves, but there is a chance that if they've actually been exposed to anything, we don't want them handling our food. We want them to be able to stay home and we want them to be able to support their families at the same time. So what this national conversation about the coronavirus has, I think, brought into focus since, you know, this is a country where so many people eat out regularly. And it may be one of the few things we continue to do, even during this epidemic moment, is we want to be aware of how important it is to have a national sick pay policy. And so this is the moment to kind of what I would call have a come to Jesus moment about sort of a social safety net that protects all of us. It's not just about the restaurant workers, but it's about the restaurant workers and the larger society and not having, a. I mean, every other industrialized nation, you can take probably up to 14 days off in the course of a year. 
We have a zero sick day policy in this country. So, you know, we I I think for people who are looking at kind of what opportunities are available to us to begin a national dialogue, one of them needs to be about a national sick day policy. The other thing that's going on is that, you know, the government is talking about trying to kind of cushion um, the impact of what it means as all these restaurants are either at shutting down or not having anybody, you know, come in and therefore their service is not at what it should be. There is going to be a huge, and what always happens is that the impact on the lowest paid employees is always the worst because these are the people living paycheck to paycheck. Before the coronavirus, people were trying to figure out how much money to spend on rent, how much money to spend on food, how to pay for healthcare for their kids. And so what we see now is a situation in which the little bit of money that they had three weeks ago now may be evaporating. Well, what are we going to do about that? And one of the most interesting conversations I've heard on one of the bazillion talk shows that I've been listening to was how when we went through the 2008 sort of financial crisis slash meltdown, all the money went to the banks. And we did not think about a way to maybe get some money to the people whose mortgages were impacted. So there would have been fewer foreclosures. So more people who really needed the help would have gotten the help. And at least some Democrats are today talking about trying to get the help directly to the people. So it just doesn't go into some, you know, again, some national bank where the money never gets to the people who need it, because we've already had experience with that back in 2008. So I am, I don't know that I'm optimistic, but I do believe that there is a big conversation taking place today about the issues of, you know, sick pay for restaurant workers and others who are otherwise, as I say, just scraping it it together to keep it, you know, keep body and soul together. And we need to think about policies that actually support these people when we go through a national crisis that nobody foresaw that is of no it's not anybody's fault it's like here we are and what are we going to do about this so the bottom doesn't totally drop out of people's lives i mean i think we should be really worried about the restaurant workers who as you say you see standing around when you come to work in the morning now mm-hmm. i mean i'm worried about them and the the small mom and pop restaurant owners who are also they were interviewed yesterday on the radio talking about, you know, well, look, we've bought our supplies for the next couple of weeks, you know, and if we can't, you know, get some customers in here, all that food goes bad, everything has to be thrown out, and they're facing huge losses. So from both the small restaurant owners and the restaurant workers, we have to come up with some kind of policy that will help them. Abby, again, before we lose you, I I did just want to note there were obviously a a lot of famous names who are interviewed or are play a role in this documentary you made. Um, two of them are, are uh, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. We're fans here of the two of them, both their screen work and, and their, their uh, activism. Uh, what, what can you tell us about their level of, of interest and in how they got involved in this issue? Well, let me say, I mean, Saru again needs to sort of add to this because I was lucky to find them on a tour that they were doing of Detroit, which they had sort of planned with Saru and they were gracious enough and they are lovely. Let me just say it was one of the high points of making this film beyond even interviewing them. I mean, we show them canvassing on the streets of Detroit demonstrate a level that they both had of commitment to this issue. Lily says it, you know, my family never had any savings. You know, my parents worked paycheck to paycheck. She was a waitress early in her life. 
Um, and Jane Fonda makes a different point, which I think is also important, which is if you know a problem, if you don't know a problem exists, that's bad, but it's ignorance. But if you know a problem exists and you do nothing about it, then you're part of the problem. And that sort of underscores again why I made the film. So what I would say about the opportunity to just observe these two wonderful women in action was that they were each seriously driven to become part of, you know, essentially the movement for one fair wage. Um, You know, I think it's particularly important to Lily Tomlin to return to Detroit, you know, where she was born and where she grew up and has, you know, kind of roots there and remembers what it was like to grow up there. Um, but it was it was actually quite amazing to watch them. They went to several universities. We were at the University of Michigan. We were at Wayne State in Detroit. We were on the streets in Detroit. I mean, they did a lot. We were at a restaurant in Detroit. I mean, they probably did 10 events over three days. Um, and I would just say that it was, you know, it was an honor to have a camera on them and to be capturing, you know, their commitment to this issue. And as I say, it was deep and it was real. And, you know, I just really appreciated, you know, their willingness to kind of get out there on the streets and talk to people. And as you see in that scene, it's like people were like sort of amazed who that, that that's who they were talking to, yeah. even if they didn't initially recognize them. <laughs> uh, so I just, I mean, really my hat is off to both of them. Um, for having made this a priority in their lives, you know, and Jane is now almost working full time on climate change. So, but again, you know, what we see from what the two of them did is that is that when a celebrity, you know, decides to put their name behind an issue, it gets some additional attention for that issue. It makes it much more, you know, publicity worthy or newsworthy, and. Anybody who's got an issue that they are trying to do activism around or organizing around is lucky, in my book, to have Jane Fonda and or Lily Tomlin as part of the team that's trying to help get attention to the issue. One last question, and then we'll say goodbye. Um, We know that we won't see you until May and looking forward to it. Um, But if anybody is interested in supporting the work, finding out more about the film and maybe a, a premiere near their town, Okay, so let me just say, okay, there is a website for the film, www.wagingchange.com, and there is a lot of information. The good news about the film is that it's actually being screened, and it may continue to be screened even during this virus moment. Um, We just did two screenings in Washington. I went to the Omaha Film Festival. It is scheduled to be at New Orleans in two weeks. We'll see what happens at the Patois Human Rights Film Festival. And we actually hope that that festival goes forward. So far, they haven't canceled because one of the workers in the film, Wardell Harvey, is from New Orleans and it's a 213 state. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. Um, It's scheduled for a film festival in Detroit and two more showings in Washington and a screening in Atlanta. I mean, the film has touched a chord and I am very grateful for that. So if people listening to this um, are from outside of the Bay Area, we stand ready to help people put on their own screenings wherever. And following our screenings in the Bay Area, we are very anxious to have people take the film and run with it in their own setting. So if you are a member of a church or a synagogue or some community organization, and this is of interest to you, we will make the film available. Um and, you know, and work with you and encourage you to show it to smaller groups. Um, under 250 people would be better at this moment. But we're very anxious for the film to get out. This is a film of this moment. And 
there, Saru can talk to you about some of the other states that are actually moving to end the tip minimum wage. So in those states, particularly, we want to encourage screenings. But this is a national issue because we, once the travel issues are resolved from the virus, we will all be traveling again. So when I was at the Omaha, Nebraska, you know, film festival, and I'm talking to the waitress at breakfast, she is a waitress who is making $2.13 an hour. Um, and she's also a teacher. And it's that. So part of what we want people to understand is in many professions, including the teaching profession, people have to supplement their income because they are paid so little as a teacher, then they have to work in a restaurant over the weekends in order to supplement that income. We are not taking care of the people that we take for granted in this country. These are the people that teach our children, you know, and or bring us our food. And no one's paying any attention to what do we pay them? How are their lives going? How complicated is it? Um, in the New Orleans story, one of the things that you see is that somebody working full-time in the restaurant industry as a server has to work part-time as a barber just to make ends meet. So we are demanding as a society, basically, that people work close to 16 hours a day just to put a meal on the table. And that is something that we need to be thinking about seriously, because I don't think that was ever the, the intention is people should work eight hours in some situations, maybe 10 hours, but not 16 hours a day out of the house, away from your kids, just to be able to pay for your rent and your food. I mean, and we are talking about people who talk about not being able to take a vacation. So vacations are off the table here. We are talking about bare essentials and bare minimums. Um, and I just feel like, you know, we want to turn this into a national discussion and depending on what happens in the 2020 election, it, should we get lucky enough to get a, you know, a Democratic Senate as well as a Democratic House, there is the possibility of change because my film ends with the House of Representatives passing the Raise the Wage Act. So that is the first time, as Reverend Hagler says in the film, the first time since emancipation that the House has acted to get rid of the tip minimum wage. That's huge. So there is reason to think that we can make some advances here. And much of that is thanks to Saru and to One Fair Wage and to Restaurant Opportunity Centers for the work that's been done, you know, basically since 2001 to raise consciousness about this issue. But the good news is enough consciousness was raised that the Democrats were able to pass a bill in the House to end it. And that is, you know, something we should know about and something we should be pushing the Senate about. Um, and so I'm just hoping that we find ways to educate each other about this. So, I mean, we all know a lot more about how viruses are transmitted today than we did three weeks ago. So I want people to know more about the tip minimum wage down the road than they did three weeks ago. Um, and my hope is that the film will make a small contribution towards that education. Thank you, Abby. We'll see you soon. We'll see you in May. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. And um, so, so, Saru, I actually, you know, it was a, it was very, it's very much an honor to have both Saru and Abby at the same time on the program. Abby being a, a an award winning filmmaker, a Bay Area, you know, favorite and beloved by the Bay Area community, but also Saru an activist here in the Bay Area, married to another huge, you know, activist himself, Zach Norris. Um, I wanted to back up and really give that piece of information for anybody tuning in for the first time and hearing of Saru and Abby's work. But 
Uh, Saru, let's go. Let's get, I mean, let's get your take, you know, on COVID-19, this pandemic and how this deeply affects our country, but mainly how it affects, you know, wage workers in the country. Yeah. So at KQED Forum yesterday, I don't know if you caught it on this issue. I had told the Chronicle that, um, you know, the way we see it, it's sort of like this, uh, this really vicious cycle where the vulnerability of these workers increases the crisis and the crisis then increases the vulnerability. And then it just keeps going crisis, vulnerability, crisis, vulnerability. And what I mean by that is even looking, zooming out of California and thinking nationally, um, you know, we just organized about 31 doctors and public health academics from UC Berkeley, from New York, from Minnesota, from even from Harvard to write a letter to Governor Cuomo in New York, who just announced one fair wage, a full minimum wage for all tipped workers, except restaurant workers, because of the power of the Restaurant Association in New York. He did that on December 31st, 2019. And what a time to leave restaurant workers out of a full minimum wage on the brink of a pandemic, because uh, what the doctors and the public health academics said was that... Um, you know, you paid sick leave is really important. Nobody's denying that. And we're, we've been fighting for paid sick leave alongside many others for years. But frankly, if you keep most workers in the country, tipped workers at a sub-minimum wage, our experience is that restaurant workers are not as likely to use those paid sick, leave, paid sick days if they still have a situation where they're relying on tips as a majority of their base wage because they are accustomed to have to go to work. Yeah. to get those tips. You can't get tips if you stay home in any way. Even if you're paid to stay home, you can't get tips. The only way you get tips is by going to work and getting those tips. And so even if you have paid sick leave, you're less likely to use it in a regime in which you've been generally told that you must get tips as a large portion of your base wage. The, the thing I think it's important for people to understand is that, as we talked about earlier, in 43 states in the United States, workers don't actually count on a wage from their employer at all. They actually think of it as like an extra or a bonus. And the tip is actually the thing they rely on, which is so backwards because the wage is, is what workers should rely on. The wage is what the employer should be paying as the entity profiting off the value of those workers' labor. Um, and the tips should be a bonus as it is in California, as it was in feudal times, as tips were always intended to be. But in these states where the wage is seen as negligible and the tips are the main source of income, these workers are not likely to, to use a paid sick leave because if you see tips as the bulk of your income, you're not going to take a pay. You're not going to avoid going to work while sick, even if you have a paid sick day. So we need paid sick days and one fair wage in order to ensure the vast majority of workers stay. Now we are in California. We pay workers a full minimum wage with tips on top. We have by state law, three paid sick days, which honestly is nothing. If you have coronavirus, what is three paid sick days going to do for you? Um, but we have to worry about what's happening in other states for a number of reasons. One, this public health, I think, really brings to the forefront something that we've known for a long time. There is structural inequality in America and it isn't just a problem for the bottom half. It isn't just a problem for those who have not. The public health crisis makes it clear that half of America not having ends up impacting everybody's health. Even the president, even people at CPAC conferences get sick because 
Half of America cannot afford to take time off when they're sick, cannot afford to take care of themselves, doesn't have access to health care. It, it is a structural problem that ends up impacting even the fancy 1% besides behind their gated communities. You know, it is, it is going to impact all of us. Um, so when I say the vulnerability, their vulnerability increases. I mean, you're talking about the people who handle your food. Whether you're going to stay away from restaurants or not, we, we know Americans rely on prepared meals. They're going to order out. They're going to rely both on restaurant workers and those Instacart, DoorDash, Postmates, delivery drivers to bring it to your door. Those folks don't have any paid sick leave. They're independent contractors. When I was on KQED yesterday, a man called and said, I'm, I'm an Uber driver who is homeless. There's a lot of us like us who, who live in our cars that we use to drive for Uber and Lyft. You tell us to stay home and don't go to work. My work is my home, my own work. What are you talking about? Uh, you tell us take time off. I don't even understand what that means. You know, on employee, you don't get paid sick leave. Um, I, I think we have to understand that all of these situations impact all of us. So these workers' vulnerability increases our crisis. And then that crisis results in, you know, restaurants being slow, businesses shutting down, and that increases their vulnerability. And that increases their need to work even when they're sick. And so you're just going to see this cycle uh, unless we wake up. And to me, that is hopefully the opportunity of this crisis is that it's going to wake up America, wake up that there are these structural inequalities, uh, that corporations have driven these structural inequalities and enough is enough. It's going to impact all of us as a result. And And the last thing I want to say on this is that what it will wake us up to as well is that corporations actually can make these changes uh, overnight. So Earlier this week, we saw a company, Darden, which is one of the leaders of the National Restaurant Association, parent company for Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Capital Grill Steakhouse, Longhorn Steakhouse, Eddie V, Seasons 52, Bahama Breeze, and a bunch of other brands. They're actually the world's largest full-service restaurant company. Um, they had fought us vitriolically on paid sick leave in the state of California, in Congress, in Orlando, Florida. I mean, all over the country, they fought and fought and fought. They said, it's impossible. We could never offer paid sick leave. They poured millions of dollars into stopping ordinances and to stopping minimum wage increases. And earlier this week, they announced they're providing paid sick leave to all of their workers. Wow. I mean, it just shows that they were capable of doing it all along. Sure. Uh, you know, they just didn't want to. And the same is true for this issue. All of these chains pay $15 in California and two, three, four dollars in the rest of the country. All of the chains are faster in California than they are in the rest of the country. When they say it's impossible to pay these workers a full minimum wage, we know from our experience in California, that's just not true. You know, there, there are a number of things we were talking about earlier that a lot of people probably don't know, don't know about the sub-minimum wage and, and uh, the fact that a lot of them, those people who get that never see a penny of that anyway. But there's something that I've always been surprised is so brazenly shown here in San Francisco, you go to a restaurant and you get your check and they'll have a line item for the San Francisco health tax or whatever it's called. And, uh, they, they show it on there as it, it has always seemed such a bizarre thing. So it seems like a protest for them to, to pull that out and say, Oh, you're paying this when that's just part of their cost of doing business. But it also brings to mind, it's like, well, why are you resisting the fact that you'd want us to know you have healthy people curving my food. You know, I mean, it, the, the, the messaging there just seems so in your face. What I wanted to get around to here is though, okay, so say you're in a restaurant that you know they're getting 
this subminimum wage. What's the best thing to do as a consumer, as someone who wants to support your server and back of the house staff? Is it on the spot? Should you try to say something to the manager? Would that get them in trouble? Just what, what kind of advice can you give people? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because we have an app. It's called the ROC National Diners Guide. Mm-hmm. Um, you can download it for free on your apps in your app store. It tells you how restaurants are faring. It gives awards to certain great restaurants that we've worked with that do the right thing. And it also tells you how the most popular restaurants in America are faring on these issues. Most likely, because there's over a million restaurants in America, most likely the restaurant you go to, you know, the next time you go to a restaurant is not going to be in the app because there's just so many restaurants out there. And so we didn't make the app to to rate every single restaurant in America and tell you where to go eat. In fact, we made the app as a tool for you as a consumer to go up to the manager or owner at the end of the year, not at the end of the meal, not, not your server, but the manager or owner and say, I love the food here. I love the service. I'd love to see you part, be part of uh, making change in this industry. And there is an association of 800 restaurants around the country called Ray's that are promoting higher wages and better working conditions for their employees. They're listed in this app. I'd love to see you, be a part of that association and and be get a gold and silver award in this app. Um, so uh, love to I would love to refer you. And then the app allows you to click refer a restaurant and then right there on the spot put the restaurant's information and then we'll follow up with the restaurant to get them engaged. And I know many of your listeners have their favorite restaurants that probably do have great food and great service, but may not be part of the forces for change, the forces for good. And that's true for both California restaurants and for restaurants, if you end up traveling into another state where the wage is $2, you know, our neighboring states of Arizona, New Mexico, they all have very low subminimum wages. Um, you know, New Mexico is at the bottom barrel of the barrel, $2.13 an hour. Um, most of the states you think of as blue, New York, DC, Massachusetts, all have ridiculously low subminimum wages. Um, so when you travel, we need you to, whenever you eat out, go up to the manager owner at the end of the meal and say, Hey, I love your, your restaurant. I'd love to see you. I want you to know that I support workers getting a full minimum wage. And I'd love to see you do well in this app. Can I refer you so you can join the group that's doing the right thing? As we wind down, sorry, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the federal response to this, as we know, you know, whatever they decide uh, to do and and not just the current administration and, and leadership, but branches of our government who are thinking about this. Um, I kind of, I mean, honestly, I kind of wish that you were in the room with them as they're thinking about how we handle this going forward. Uh, but the second part to the question of your thoughts of how the federal government is responding to our situation right now, our crisis, is also if you all, you carry the same hope that Abby had mentioned at the end of uh, her interview. Do you feel hopeful? Do you Do you think that do I trust this administration to make the right decision? No, I don't. I kind of wish that you were in the same room with them making the decisions. Oh, thanks. I, I do feel hopeful. I mean, I, I feel both terrified and hopeful because, yeah. uh, I mean, the administration is not just diabolical. They're incompetent, completely, completely incompetent and, and idiotic. And the idea that uh, that they've got it under control is just laughable because – 
you know, there are no tests. How do, how do we know how widespread is the virus if none of us have been tested? It's ridiculous. Um, you know, and, and Italy keeps sending warnings to us of what we're going to see. And maybe as soon as 10 days, uh, it's terrifying. And yet, um, the rapidity of, you know, change, as I said, Darden changing its practices overnight, the words paid sick leave coming out of President Trump's mouth. Um, you know, this morning, he even, uh, he actually gave a press conference uh, this morning where he said, uh, I'm looking at an emergency package that could include paid sick leave. And I understand tip workers are in a unique situation. That was, uh, wow, what a breakthrough. You know, what a breakthrough for us who've been trying to elevate the fact that tipped workers are in a unique situation. Um, but I mean, what's, so I don't, I don't, I'm terrified by the administration's response. We must rely on states and private actors to fill in when you've got a federal government, like a federal administration like this. And yet, if President Trump can recognize with his idiocy, if he can recognize that tipped workers are in a situation and we, it's paid sick leave is actually not going to be enough for tipped workers. We actually need to, to make sure they can afford to stay home, that they get a full minimum wage that they can rely on the tips on top. Then why couldn't Governor Cuomo in New York follow suit? Why couldn't, you know, Governor Pritzker in, in Illinois or, or, or any of these blue states, why couldn't they not only do paid sick leave, but ensure one fair wage for all of their workers? I do want to commend Governor Newsom. You know, we already have one fair wage. He's looking beyond paid sick leave to disability leave, long-term disability leave for people on coronavirus. I think those are the kinds of ideas we need to see. The hope that I have is that if all of us are a bit, uh, are, if, if we end up quarantined, if we end up, you know, not able to travel, that if we're at home and we have more time, that we, we will use that time to express our outrage and get companies like Darden and governors like Cuomo to actually move on these issues that they've needed to move on for a very long time. In the, in the documentary, Waging Change, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, is shown. She's talking to activists and, and as well as interviewed. Other than her, what are there heroes of yours in you know, on this topic in Congress and who are they? Who, who can we, we, uh, point out? Yeah. Um, there are lots, I mean, the house, uh, as Abby mentioned, we worked for a long time and uh, it was a really historic moment for us in July of last year to have the house uh, for the first time since emancipation address the issue of the sum minimum wage and call for $15 across the board for everybody, including sum minimum wage tipped workers, including people with disabilities who get a sum minimum wage. Only two groups were left out that we have to keep working on. That's incarcerated workers who get a sum minimum wage, even here in California. And it's actually quite ugly with our wildfires. We've had incarcerated people fighting wildfires for 13 cents an hour alongside unionized firefighters. It's something we have to get rid of here in California. Um, so <laughs> that bill, though, almost covered everybody except for incarcerated workers and gig workers. What we need is a full comprehensive raise the wage act that passes in both the House and the Senate. But I give a lot of credit to lots of House members that that moved that bill, even even centrists who moved that bill in the House and passed it with really historic results. So uh, Bobby Scott led the led the led the charge um, from Virginia um, but Jan Schakowsky was, as you saw in the film, Hakeem Jeffries was a huge leader on the issue. Obviously, Pelosi did play a big role in moving that bill. Um, you know, Keith Ellison's no longer in the Congress, but was a longtime uh, champion of ours, as was Donna Edwards from Maryland. 
you know, Ina Presley has been, been a big supporter, Rashida Tlaib, Brenda Lawrence from Michigan. I mean, just so many, I'm sure I'm going to forget. On the Senate side, Senator Patty Murray from Washington State, Senator Merkley from Oregon, Senator Sanders is the one who introduced the bill in the Senate. Um, Senator uh, Sherrod Brown from Ohio. I mean, lots of amazing people who, some who, of whom have moved on this issue with us from saying we need to raise the minimum wage to say we need to get rid of the sub-minimum wage altogether. Enough is enough. Hopefully we as a country have uh, agreed that slavery is a thing of the past uh, and that we need to get rid of these legacies of slavery, all sub-minimum wages, the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which is a legacy of slavery, the sub-minimum wage for incarcerated workers, which is a direct legacy of slavery because of the exception to the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery in the case of incarceration. We need to address these legacies of slavery. We need to address these really clear and legal gender pay inequity issues. Uh, enough is enough. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Saru. And um, thank you for, for all your work and your activism and advocacy that's impacted millions of people in this country. And you're just such an inspiration. And I say we're super lucky here in the Bay Area that we get to call you one of our own. <laughs> um, and hopefully we'll see you soon, at, you know, the, the premiere of Waging Change in the Bay. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. That was a great conversation. And like you said, when this was scheduled, we didn't realize how timely it would be in light of other affairs that are going on in the, around the world right now with this coronavirus thing. Exactly, exactly. So many thanks to award-winning filmmaker Abby Ginsberg. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure of it if you're tuning in, you're from the Bay Area, you've seen a lot of Abby's work. Um, she touches on social justice issues on all of her films. And, of course, activist Saru J. Raman, who is here in the Bay Area with us and longtime activist fighting for wage workers and uh, equity for a lot of our communities and their film, Waging Change. And so as John mentioned, you know, yes, it's a timely conversation. Unfortunately, this, the premiere of Waging Change, which was scheduled to happen in San Francisco later this month, is not happening, but it's been rescheduled to May 17th. Um, but make sure you check back their their website if there could be any changes. We, we don't know. So go to wagingchange.com. Thanks again for joining us here for the program here at the Commonwealth Club. Again, we're in this together. We plan on doing, you know, we, we, well, we plan on not stopping. That's that's right. the thing um, to, to, to remember. So we'll always have the interviews here for you and production of other things. If you have thoughts, ideas, Send us an email at uh, producer at michellemeow.com or head to the full schedule of other upcoming programs that we'll do virtually, commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>